If you have your copy of God's Word, and I certainly hope you do, or you can grab one in the back of your pews there, we're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. We're going to look at the first 15 verses together. Let's hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. And Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, uh, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. And the men numbered about 5,000. When Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were full... He told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves and were left over for those who had eaten. And when the people saw this sign, saw the sign he had done, they, they said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, Jesus, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen and amen. I, I like to consider myself somewhat um, a student of history, a student of even sociological movements and phenomena, particularly within the life of the church. And so one of the things that has always intrigued my interest is particularly those, those, those patterns of renewal that you've seen throughout church history, such as the Reformation, of which we would see ourselves as sons and daughters. Uh, the Puritan movement in uh, Great Britain, of course, would be one of those. Uh, the first Great Awakening that happened here on our shores. Uh, you might even say even the second Great Awakening, although I'm less interested in that one, if I'm being honest. But one of the movements that I'm sure is going to be written a lot about, in fact, it's already beginning to be written about, is what's happened over the last oh, 20 or 25 years. It's a movement that has been dubbed the Young, Restless, and Reform Movement, of which I would consider myself a son, and I would say probably so many of us in here who have probably there, you'll know what I'm talking about here in a minute, would find yourselves being of the same, you, know, you might even call this movement New Calvinism. And so it's been this reemergence. Of, of, of interest in Calvinistic soteriology, uh, big word there, understanding of salvation, and how that informs our theology and all the things that go along there. And so certainly I have been impacted by that. And, um, and so this has been kind of been happening since the mid-90s or so. It's been this movement kind of began to kind of, kind of uh, creep open and then kind of moved all the way through to the early 2000s, that first decade or so of the new century. And it was this massive resurgence, right? of Calvinistic theology that, that kind of helped realign the church 
to its like God-centered place, to realign the church towards God's sovereign goodness and that God sends his church into the world with this missional ambition and um, missional desire to see churches planted. And so we've seen this renewal among even among Baptists and evangelicals, broadly speaking, in this arena. We've seen the uh, growth of some significant Presbyterian denominations, which are which we have friendly affiliation with, us, uh, of course, ourselves, um, like the PCA, these these kind of evangelical reformed denominations, or even like in our network, that one of the networks we associate with here is the Acts Twenty Nine Network. These were all kind of birthed out of this again, this young, restless, and reformed movement. And one of the major players that contributed to this, or if you want to say one of the major cogs in the wheel was this movement called Passion. And maybe you're familiar with this. You went to college in the late 90s and early 2000s, you definitely know what Passion is. If you weren't, you weren't paying attention close enough. And Passion was this movement that was um, really just about calling college students to, re- to re-examine what life looked like beyond college and to how they would play a role in this resurgence of God-centered church life and ministry or Christian life and ministry. And it, it was kind of the, the, big, the big moment although it's continued in ministry even to this day. But the big moment was this gathering in Memphis in 2000 at Shelby Farms, which I was a part of. And uh, it gathered around 40,000 college students from across the nation, mostly across the Southeast. And it was something. It was somewhat of a massive awakening. Maybe it was even, I'm going to use this word because it's more irrelevant to our text, it's more kind of an exodus a reminder that we've been called out on an exodus as God's people. See, I think what God does throughout church history is he has these renewal movements like the Reformation, like the Puritanism, and like the uh, uh, First Great Awakening, and even, I would say, in a much smaller ways, this Young, Restless, and Reform movement to kind of remind the church what you're called to, that we're called out into this exodus adventure, into the wilderness to follow God, trust God, trust him in his ways, they were not to be like everyone else. Now, this movement has some age now. Even now, I'd say I'm in my mid-40s, and I don't, I'm not nearly as young or college-like as I once was. Um, but it has some age now, and there's been certainly some people who've had good and bad, you know, un, you know remembrances of this particular movement. But I go there this morning because today... As we look at the feeding of the 5,000, we remind ourselves that even in these little movements that we find ourselves in today are really nothing less than God's routine reminder to his people that we are called out on this new exodus to depend upon him, to see him show his goodness towards his people, his mercy towards his people as he guides us through this dry and weary world that we live in. That if you want to understand the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, you've got to properly situate it, if you will, within that kind of larger exodus call that God has put on his people since the beginning, to be different, to be holy, be separated unto him. Now, here's a couple of things we need to do before we get into the text this morning, and if you were here last week, you'll be benefited from it. If not, I'm going to try to help you out. There's two things that we talked about last week that will really help us understand and ground this text this morning. Number one, that Jesus' works, okay, we said there was these threefold witness of Jesus, all right? It was John the Baptist, his works, and the scriptures. Jesus' works are signs. 
and they point to something signified. They have a deeper meaning than the actual temporal event or activity itself. It's going to be particularly important as we look at the five, feeding the 5,000 this morning. Because there's something beyond feeding the 5,000 that John wants us to see here this morning. And number two, and you remind yourself, it's like from the end of our text last week, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus said, you know who your real accuser is? You want to accuse me. You want to put me on trial. Let me tell you who accuses you. The very man that you venerated, Moses. Moses. He's the one who accuses you. You know why he accuses you? Because you have failed to see me. Because he's been talking about me since the beginning. Everything about the Old Testament is, is really about this bedrock of Christian theology that God made a promise. And then in Jesus, he kept it. That's, if you want to just get to the heart, I say this a lot, but it's something that I, I never want to get our, our eyes off of focus. If you want to get the heart of the Old Testament, you've got to get that it's about a promise made. Amen. And that God keeps his promises. And so if you really want to understand Moses properly, if these Jews who are, who, are, who are pushing back against Jesus want to understand who Jesus is, they've got to situate Moses properly. Because if they don't, of course they can't see him. They, of, course they can't, of course they can't see the, the significance of this feeding of the 5,000. Because John's theological purposes hinge on a right understanding of what God has been doing since the beginning. And if you can't understand what God's been doing since the beginning and how he's been revealing himself, we don't have a, we don't have a flash chance of understanding who Jesus is. That's why you can't just say we're New Testament Christians. I hate that term. We're not New Testament Christians. We're Christians. We're redeemed people. And then we've been, we are situated within the redeemed people since the beginning. And if you want to use the word, we're true Israel. It is what we are. And we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. So here's, here's my sermon in a sentence this morning, and then let's just dig in. Jesus leads and feeds his spiritually hungry people on this new exodus as we live as exiles in this dry and weary world. Not too far away from our study in um, Daniel, right? That that's what we are. We are God's people sent into dry and weary spaces. That's what this whole world is. That's what our whole campaign is. It's to know that this, is, like, this world will never satisfy us, no matter how, much, how deeply we drink of it. Only Jesus feeds that hunger. So there's three, I mean, there's four main ideas. I'm sorry, three main ideas this morning. I'm sorry, four main ideas this morning that I want us to see. Headings. I want us to see the setting that, that of this new exodus that John lays in the first few verses. Then I want to see the problems that arise among God's people in this new exodus as they're learning to depend upon God. Then I want us to see God's provision for his people in the midst of the exodus. And then I want to see this great declaration of this new king, Jesus. Because it has everything to do with where we are right now. So let's talk about the setting of this new exodus here in verses 1 through 4. Let's just remind again, let's put our eyes on the text. You know what we do here. We we want to see the word. It's there we see God clearly. It says, so then Jesus has crossed the Sea of Galilee. And in my version, it says the, the, the Tiberias. So there was, it was a renaming of it of some sort during that day, I guess, under Herod. And a crowd came and was following him because they saw the signs he was doing, performing to heal the sick. And he went up on the mountain and sat down with his disciples and begins to say, hey, we need to have a conversation He's expecting to leave this crowd who's been following him behind, but he can't seem to shake these guys. 
And then it tells us this little detail, and this is all going on around the Passover. Now, let's just consider this just for a moment, that there's this event that's getting ready to transpire, this feeding of the 5,000. And in John's terminology, in his makeup of the gospel, of his gospel, is that this is a fourth of seven signs he will give the people about who Jesus is. Again, if you want to get to the heart of it, you got to understand how John structures his gospel. And this is the fourth sign he's given his people, his readers, to see that Jesus is this coming sovereign Lord and Savior. It's so key. You can't study John and understand that these things hang. All of our understanding of John can't just be hung on like your little selected verses. But that you actually have to see what John's trying to do here. And he is trying to show us, here again is another sign. that speaks clearly who Jesus is. And that it's been revealing what God has been doing. But I love the particular genius of this, the placement of this particular story. Why? Because what we've already noted, that he's come off this like indictment of the Jews, the leaders, saying, you don't even get Moses. And then he comes right into this 5,000. He goes, let me show you what Moses is all about through my own works, through my own feeding of the 5,000. That's exactly what we're getting to see set up here. In fact, in these first four verses, you can see this whole new exodus beginning to form. Verse 1, what is it? He's, he's crossing the Sea of Galilee. Now, where does that take us to? The Red Sea, right? Like he's, he's, he's there and preparing to cross this Red Sea moment. Then in verse 2, there's this large crowd who's in tow behind Jesus saying, we need you, Jesus, and Jesus is, is there. And, and, and they're there because why? Because they see Jesus' works. They see all the things he's done to heal people. Well, what did Moses do? Well, he went to the Pharaoh and had the seven plagues. And the people go, okay, well, maybe we should trust this guy and follow him out. Well, that's what we have here. Verse 3, we see the disciples go up on a mountain with their Lord to take counsel with him. Now, now again, how do, what does that sound like? Moses going up to the mount to have counsel with the Lord and receive the Lord's commands. Do you see it? how it's all taking shape here? And then, of course, then John puts this little... Probably most people would just say it's unusual. It's not, a, it's not chronological little point here. That it's all happening around the Passover. But see, John doesn't worry about chronology in his, in his gospel like the other gospels do. I said this early on in our study. Everything he does is theological. He's building something. He's painting a picture. And that's what he's doing here in, these, in this feeding of the 5,000. Now let me just stop right there and... and Make sure we understand, like, how did we arrive at these kind of conclusions about the text? Because, ultimately, if we don't have a good tools to understanding the Bible, we'll probably read the Bible poorly. And we want to preach the Bible so as to help people, guys, people read the Bible. And so for us, I want to make sure that you understand what's ha- what I am doing with the text versus what I'm not doing with the text. So there is this kind of... Um, very poor way of, of translating the Bible, or at least interpreting the Bible, called allegory. And allegory is when you try to take a story and r- really ignore the story altogether, its relevance. And so that's what liberals would do back in the early, Protest- early liberal Protestantism. And they would take the story of the Bible and they would deny that it was actually anything miraculous about it. So they would deny that Jesus did anything significant here. But they would then take this story and they go, well, it has to have a moral to it, to it right? And so they would take allegory. And they would just say, well, then this is what this means, and this is what this means, and this is what this means. What I'm doing here this morning is not allegory. It's types and shadows. 
fact, this is historical Christian interpretation. When we would go back and we go, oh, we see how God is connecting dots for us so that we can see his larger redemptive picture. So we take, we take types and shadows to show that the very real miraculous events that have happened through Jesus' own hands are actually showing us things that are bigger than what we actually see. They're bigger than the, so for instance, the parting of the, of the Red Sea. It's bigger because God's doing something else different. He's parting his people from the people of the world. So we understand that there's something more significant than that. We understand that there's something more significant than feeding the 5,000 because it's not merely about compassion for those people, which we will talk about briefly. He certainly is doing that, and it's a very real thing he's doing. But he's doing something more. He's calling his people to trust him, to depend upon him, to lean upon him. Now that's important because John is preparing his readers to see this in that context. It's very important that we understand how we are to preach this text because he's preparing his readers to see Jesus coming, his death and his resurrection as the antitype, if you will, of the fulfillment of all that Moses had been preaching and teaching. All the law, antitype means it's the fulfillment of the types and shadows of the Old Testament, just to kind of help us understand what that means. And who were John's readers? Weren't they just early fledgling church in around 80, 90 and 95? who were now past the destruction of the temple. They're living in this Greco-Roman society that's largely hostile to them. They're making the church high, go underground, if you will. And they don't really know what to do. And it seems like all of this is ramping up. We got people who say they're Christians. They're out, what John says later in his epistles, you know, they, were, they, they thought they, they were among us, but they were not of us. And so you see all this stuff happening in the church. And they're probably wondering, okay, John, pastor, how am I supposed to make sense of all this? And he comes to them with love and he says, you're on a new exodus. You're on a true and better exodus. The final exodus, if you will, that I'll call you to. And one day when Jesus returns, he'll seal that exodus with his grace and mercy when he comes to be our full and final king. He already is, of course. And so that's what John's trying to see us, help us see. He's, have you ever heard the terminology, you heard this, the, the, the statement, don't miss the forest for the trees? Well, that's what John's doing. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get so bogged down in all the details of your lives that you see these things and you're not actually seeing what God is doing. Don't miss the forest for the trees. And friends, we need to remind ourselves of that today, do we not? That we don't need to miss the forest for the trees, that God's people must wonderfully be immersed continually in this redemptive narrative that runs from Genesis to Revelation as we read God's word properly, that God's people, if we're honest about ourselves, we can often get distracted from God's redemptive story that runs throughout our lives with so much of the daily minutia. Beware, friends. Beware, beware that this, this kind of cancer creeps into the souls of believers all the time to get us so bogged down by the, 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 the daily minutia that we forget what God is actually doing and has done for his people. If anyone, I mean, think about it. If anyone had concerns, political, cultural concerns and shifts, wouldn't it have been that first church? To see that they are truly, I mean, we are in a pagan world. And the church was in a pagan world back then too. 
And they had to figure out how they were going to make the next pieces fit and the next steps go. Just like we do. We're, no, we're really no different. The history of the church is, I was, I, we were sitting talking with our men about how, how eschatology fits into our framework. And I, I find it very interesting that you can have an, an eschatology that creates fear. Like looking at the end and everything that's going wrong and you get real fearful. Or you can have a, a kind of an eschatology that says really triumphant. We're going to beat these guys. Or you can have one that just weathers the storm. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a pilgrim theology guy. I'm like Daniel. I don't know what God has in store in, in, in Babylon. But I'm just going to weather the storm there until Jesus returns. That's the way that I, I understand these moments right now. And I think this is the way that John would have the church here read this story to understand you're in a storm, just weather it. God's faithful to you. He'll provide. And he does. And we see here in just a few moments. Well, then the problem arises, doesn't it? You see it here in verses 5 through 9. Uh, I'm just going to summarize it. It says that... Um, he looked up and saw and noticed the huge crowd around him, and, and he begins to ask the question. He asks Philip the question, so what are we going to do to feed these people? All, now, all the while knowing that he knows exactly what he's about to do, but he wants to kind of, he wants to kind of really expose Philip's heart, expose Andrew's heart, expose the disciples' heart, which is what our God will do sometimes. He'll make us ask hard questions to, to reveal what we really believe and what we, what we really trust. And so then Philip responds with, uh, well, we got 200 denarii, which is about eight months of salary in those days. How in the world are we going to feed this people? Come on, Jesus. Can we be a little realistic now? <laughs> you probably felt that way sometimes. You get down to the end of the month and you're like, I'm not sure we can make it to payday. And I got like, $17 in the account, and we got, got groceries, and I've been there. Like, come on, Jesus. There has to be, you have, you have to be realistic here, Jesus. Then Andrew, of course, comes in, and he's like, hey, I got this little boy right here, and I'm about to shank his lunch, Jesus. But do you think you can do something with that? Probably can't. And so this is what Jesus is trying to expose. He's trying to expose this problem of the heart. But, let, but as you're exposing, he's exposing the problems of the heart, one thing that we dare not miss about how Jesus engages this situation is that he engages it with compassion. Because he first engages it by saying, hey, we got a problem here. These people are following me. And, and listen, they may never really believe me. In fact, by the end of the chapter, most of these people are gone. They've abandoned Jesus. But that doesn't deter Jesus from showing compassion to these people. He shows compassion for them. Jesus knows that their physical hunger pangs, just like ours, oftentimes mask our ability to see the real spiritual hunger pangs of our hearts, and that's what he's trying to expose here. Amen. Yes, you have hunger issues. I have hunger issues. We have needs, real physical needs, earthly needs. But let me show you the deeper need you have. And so he sets up this whole very tense situation. Why? Well, again, as I told you, if we're starting to understand this in the context of the Exodus, what else happened in the wilderness? As the people were going through the wilderness, and they're probably wondering, 
I'm not sure where my next meal is coming from. And they begin to complain among one another, uh, among themselves. They even go to Moses and they go, hey, Moses, um, I don't know if this is figuring into your plans, but like we're kind of hungry and we left everything back there and we don't have, and our rations are getting thin. So we don't really know how long we can keep this up. What's at the heart of this? Well, he's revealing the disciples to do the very same thing that Christians and believers and followers of God. By the way, you're not alone. If you find yourself in this place, because I've been there, we just, we lose sight of God's goodness so quickly, so fast. We turn into these people who complain against God, and they, and you can, you can imagine, you know the questions. Really? Why have you put us in this situation, Jesus? Is following God really better? Because I feel like, oh yeah, I was a slave, but at least I had a house. I had a roof over my head, and I had food, and yeah, maybe I had a few you know, bruises and stuff for, by things over in Egypt, but at least I had some basic things taken care of, and here I am out here following God, and I got nothing. At least it appears to be nothing. Maybe I should just go back to my slavery. And listen, I just want to know, and I, need, I want to know what you need to know, that, and for me personally, I've had those thoughts. It would be easier not to be a Christian. It would. It would. be easier just to kind of go with the flow. But see, this is the backdrop that John's constructing for us. He's forcing us to come face to face with what's really in our heart. Do we really see what God is doing? And my question for you and for me is always, have we found ourselves there? I'm being honest, I have. More times than I would like to admit, frankly, if I'm being truthful. Questioning God but trying to sound reasonable while doing it. Have you done that? Well, God, I get what you're doing here. But uh, really, I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, you know, ungrateful or anything. But uh, certainly, there's got to be a better way of going about this business. So you kind of trust God, but you're kind of don't. Expecting different outcomes to have transpired in your life that haven't really transpired in your life whatever they may be, whether it's be your job, your money, your family, maybe you're expected to, you know, have a certain income by this time or be, you know, be married or have kids or whatever. I can tell you that that was my church planting story. Amanda and I, she's, she's been so, so, so patient with me. Okay, so you didn't know that. You should. If you've met me for five minutes, you know that she's been extremely patient with me. And uh, we get married, and a year later, we're moving off to, from Kentucky to Raleigh because I knew I was called to plant a ch- church in Raleigh because I wanted to be in Raleigh. That was, that was what it was about. So we settled into the larger area, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, took over a church plant that was, had just lost their pastor, and uh, we were there for two years. It was a hard two years. It was mostly God chasing me, showing me how much I needed to trust him. And 
With God's mercy, we plant, we, that church fell. That was mercy. I didn't see it as mercy at the time, but it was mercy. He planted us in a really solid church for a few months until we came back to, came to Nashville. And I thought, okay, great, we're good. Now we're back into church and everything's going to be good. Wrong. Six months later, church goes to a massive church split. I, I, I have lost money on a house that I bought in Chapel Hill and I just closed on and I, lost, I think we lost like $15,000 we had to bring to the table to pay off the house. 2008, so you know, it's that downfall. So we're like, what are we going to do? And so we, here we are again, and then these people leave, and we plant this church called Providence Church. Okay, great, my man's going to get better now. Wrong. Two years of just infighting and bickering because everyone was so, so concerned about getting their pound of flesh when we started that church because they didn't want us to be like what we left, but no one was trusting Jesus. And I would say that even among the pastors. And God had to do some real work in our hearts. But two years into this whole thing, God begins to change and transform, leads people to repentance, leads people to reconciliation. Uh, some people had to leave the church because, and that was a grace to us as well. And it was just, a, it was just seeing God do what he did. And, and friends, I'm telling you, I've been, in that ex, I've been in that wilderness season. And listen, when we were in the middle of that two years, that first two years of the church, let me tell you, I was on every web page trying to find the next church job because I just knew God couldn't have this as his plan for my life. I just knew that. To the point that I got in touch with my home church. They were looking for a student pastor, and I was like, okay, this is it. We had multiple conversations. This must be it because, I mean, you know, I, mean, I know people, and they, 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 they got to want me there. And then I sat down, and I'm in all this angst, and the words that God used in my life were my wife's words. If God has ordained suffering and trial for this season, don't you think he'll find us in Roanoke, Virginia, too? Why don't we just weather it out now, learn from it, trust God, and see what he has for us, and how fantastic it has been. Not that it hasn't been hard since then, because it has. We planted a church for crying out loud. But God just showed his mercy and kindness. And so I want us to recognize that these same problems that we kind, of, we kind of build up in our hearts and minds are the very same problems that have been plaguing humanity since the beginning. And they've been plaguing God's people since the beginning. So you're, if you're there, let me tell you, you're not alone. And Jesus enters right into that, and that leads us to our third heading. That there's provision by our sovereign and merciful Lord right in the midst of that problem. This is, this is the climax. Everyone's so certain that they're not in the right place. Certainly, Jesus has made a wrong turn somewhere along the lines. And Jesus says, all right. And let me just summarize the next few verses for us. He tells the people to sit down. And you see God's mercy in this, that, that as they're in this dry and weary space between on their way to Jerusalem, on their way for Passover, there's this grassy plain which would be unusual for these days. And he has them all sit down. And they sit down, and they're, and they're numbered about 5,000. Let me just make sure you understand what this 5,000 means. You may, not, you may have heard this before, but if you haven't, this is not 5,000 total people. This is 5,000 men. 
See, the way they did censuses back then was they counted the men and perhaps the teenage boys of their homes. And this is most likely about 25 or 30,000 people. Auntie's up a little bit now, isn't it? See, so he has all these men sit down to receive their rations. How in the world is Jesus going to do what he's about to do? Well, let's find out. So he takes the loaves, and what does he do first? Huh? He gives thanks. What he is doing is so profound, but we need to take notice of it. He takes the fish and the portion that God had provided, and he gives thanks. He stands there. He breaks the bread. It's a, in some ways a picture of the Lord's Supper, and he just says, I'm, I'm giving thanks to your provision, to the portion that you have given to your people. So much of this is missing in our modern discourse when it comes to how we, what we think we need in our lives. And not the least of which is this happening among God's people. That so many times we have written a list that's much more extensive about what we need, but God has something much more significant. And not only will he meet our minimum needs, he actually meets our, our abundant needs. Because that's what we see in the, net, in the rest of the text, right? They're all seated there, and they ate as much as they wanted. So this is not a God who's stingy with the things. He's not saying, okay, well, listen, guys, if this is going to go, all right, here's your piece. Here's your... No, he, the rations are not rations. They're abundance. And this is the way God has always treated his people. Yes. God has never been stingy with his people, ever. Now, that may not mean that you're going to make, have a million dollars in the account next week or have multiple cars or have a big the kind of house, whatever. It doesn't mean that. And maybe that for some of us, that's not the kind of abundance that we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of God who says, you're in a weary and dry land, but I'm going to provide for you and take care of you, and I want to make sure that you get all the way home. That's the kind of abundance that we have in, in play here. And we're not even done yet, because then he goes to them and says, hey, so then get all these little random pieces that have been kind of falling on the ground. He takes the rest of the bread and the rest of the fish, and how many baskets does it fill? Twelve. And again, if you don't understand that what John is doing here to show us this bigger picture of God's abundance for who? His people. The twelve baskets represent who? God's people. The twelve disciples represent who? God's people. Amen. This is how our God functions. He always takes care of his people. He always takes care, as I said earlier, of his true Israel. We're not New Testament Christians. We are whole Bible Christians here. True Israel are the ones who find their longings, their needs, their thirsts, their hungers, Met in who? Christ. Is that the case for you this morning? That the Exodus event calls us as God's people who are wandering in this land that seems aimless and purposeless, purposeless to find our abundance in Christ alone? Not in our bank accounts, not in our 401ks, not in our social comforts, not in our relational spheres. How many of us are so frantically 
work throughout our lives to pivot or outstep the hardships that we don't want to experience so that in the end, all we have to do is depend on ourselves. And if that's the case, do we understand what we're missing? Do we understand what we're missing? I've seen it in living color in my own life. So then what's the response to this whole event? Verse 15, 14 and 15. The people saw the sign that he had done. This is the prophet. This is the one. Remember what we said last chapter? Jesus had always been speaking about Jesus. That's the prophet that Moses had been talking about. This has got to be him. He's the one who's come into the world. And they're so excited that Jesus starts to see what they're about to do. And what, is they, what are they about to do? They're about to take him by force and make them their king. And it's not the kind of king that they needed. It's a king who would be a political revolutionary, if you will. This is our man, you might say. They had correctly discerned that Jesus is that prophet that Moses talked about. That is for sure. But they had incorrectly understood the scope of that prophet's mission and call. The scope of Jesus' ministry was much bigger than their, their geopolitical interests of the day. Friends, it's the same thing today. Same thing today. See, they probably wanted to hoist Jesus up on their shoulders. They were on their way to Jerusalem. They wanted to walk, march right into Jerusalem, and they wanted to say, This guy's our man. They, they had geopolitical, maybe even interests of creating factions there and say, this is our man, this is the guy, he's going to fix everything that went wrong for us here, and we're going to finally be out from under the shackles of Rome. This is what they wanted to see. And they weren't entirely wrong that this is some aspect of the king's call. Like, as the new king, he will one day free us from those shackles. But not yet. Not yet. That'll be in his second coming. What they didn't see is that Jesus didn't need them to coronate him king and hoist him on their shoulders and march into Jerusalem. That he was waiting for what? A better coronation. A new, a different kind of coronation. A coronation that would come with what? His trial. That his coronation would come with his beating. That his coronation would come through his crucifixion. That his coronation would come through his vicarious death for sinners. That his coronation would come through his resurrection from the dead and, as, and him standing at the right hand of the Father when he ascends into heaven as the true and final ruler over all. Amen. They had too small a vision of the coronation of the king. And we do too sometimes. We do too. Now before we're done, I need you to see something before we close. We talk a lot about Jesus and his offices here at our church. We did a series on this back at Advent two years ago. But I want you to notice that we see all three of Jesus' offices in play in this text. And when I say offices, what am I talking about? Prophet, priest, and king, right? His, his, his prophetic office is certainly there. They're declaring him prophet. They see him. He's the one who's come, and he's going to fulfill everything that Moses said. So that's certainly on display. But he's priest. What do priests do? They mediate for the people. They provide for the people. They care for the people. Isn't that what we see Jesus doing for his people? And then he's king. 
His kingly office is on display here, but not in the way that they had seen it. That he's a better king who reveals the kingdom of God and rules right over, over it right here and right now. See, this king doesn't need you and I to go, this is our man. Although he is. This king, this king doesn't need a military coup, a mob coup, a political coup to establish his rightful rule and reign. He needs a cross coup. He declared war on the cross against the principalities and powers of this world. And he gained victory through his resurrection. How foolish our little coups are. How pitiful they actually are. His cross and his resurrection has restrained the evil tirade of Satan, even into this day. Even if Satan's works are still evident throughout the world, but Christ has, through his cross and resurrection, bound him here and now. Again, why I can go through the little waters here? Because I know that. I can live with that assurance that he's bound him. And he will one day when he returns judge the living and the dead and his new heavens and his new earth will be established forever and forever and forever. See, their temporal vision for Jesus just doesn't do. It was so misguided. And many times ours will be as well. Embrace him for who he is. So let's, let's land the plane. Let me just ask the question of you. Who's your man, Christian? And how do people know it? Who's your man, Christian? Is it Jesus? I hope it is. I hope it's Jesus. If you're truly a Christian, he is your man. He is your man. And, 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 And we should allow that to just radiate through our lives. How is it radiating through your life? Let me tell you who's not your man. Some gringo on Pennsylvania Avenue. Who's not your man? Some representative who takes advantage of your Christian values just so they can get your vote. They're not your man. Jesus is. Jesus is the man. And let me just show you how Paul talks about Jesus, your man. Verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For everything, emphasis there, was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, again, Jesus here, and by Him all things hold together. That sounds like a really awesome ruler right there. Let's keep going. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Who's your man? The one who takes first place in everything. For God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through, through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he, he, this ruler, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are, are not 
are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation. And Paul says, I have become a servant of it. Who's your man? The one who accomplishes everything you need on the cross of Christ. That's your man. And this man will get the coronation he deserves. Paul says so in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. For this reason God has highly exalted him. Who? Jesus. And gave him the name that is above every name. And guess what? So that at the name of Jesus, every, again, emphasis there, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God forever. Friends, we're called on a glorious exodus. It's going to be tough, but we got Jesus as our man to lead us all the way through it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, help us now this morning as we come to this table to receive not just our weekly rations of grace, but to receive grace abundantly as we come to this table this morning. To be reminded that everything that is needed for our life and salvation and for our ministry and our, for everything is found in Christ. And that's what this table is. It's a sign that, God give, that you have given to us, God to remind us that we are your people. We must participate in it. God, if there's people here this morning who have got sin between them and there, and they're really genuine believers, God, I pray that they would reconcile that now as they come. If there's people here who don't know Christ, may you convict their hearts to repent and believe. It's in Christ's name. Amen.